Hi guys, welcome back to the next episode of Physique Science Radio. Today we're here with myself, co-host Sohee Lee, and Dr. Lane Norton. Um, he's actually, hey Sohee, how's it going? Good, great. Uh, I hear you're actually on our layover in between flights right now. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be the first episode of Physique Science Radio I'm recording from an airport terminal. <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't know. That might just be a first. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. today we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Megan Klabundi with us. She is a postdoc fellow at Stanford University, and she actually has a specialty in eating disorders um, and right now is doing a lot of brain imaging research. So hi, Dr. Megan. Hello. Nice <laughs> to meet both of you. How are you? I'm great. I'm super excited to be here today. Thanks so much for coming on. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and what you study and what you do? Sure, sure, absolutely. So um, I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University, and I'm focusing on using neuroimaging research to study specifically um, body cue detection and how that's related to the brain. And I have a I got started in doing this research um, in eating disorders, so I have that as a background of mine. And I'm super excited to be able to talk to the both of you um, about eating disorders and the fitness community and all of that fun stuff that I think is a super important conversation for us to have. Oh, yeah. You know what? I think, man, I think eating disorders within the fitness community is such a loaded topic. And honestly, I'm sure we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. Mm -hmm. um, but we have topics like fit shaming and fat shaming and competing and all these things and that, that hopefully we'll get to at least touch on today. So to start off, Megan, can you talk to us about, I mean, I'm sure we're, we're all of us are familiar with uh, a couple different eating disorders, but can you talk to us about the more prevalent types of eating disorders you see within the fitness community? Mm -hmm. Well, absolutely. So um, there are, most people know about when it comes to eating disorders, they're familiar with like anorexia and bulimia nervosa, right. Right. and those are definitely, um, those are, you know, more well-known um, eating disorders. But then there's also, um, more recently, with um, the change of our diagnostic manual, statistical manual, um, that we also have binge eating disorder. There are some uh, eating disorders of childhood um, that people tend to have. And then there also there's this huge category of unspecified eating disorders and um, eating disorders that, you know, other types of eating disorders as well. So um, you have like purging disorder, you have like atypical anorexia. So there's a group of, there's a criteria of eating disorders that don't necessarily, there's a group that doesn't necessarily meet the criteria for like anorexia or bulimia, but they're right. still definitely um, prevalent in their disordered eating as well. Um, also, there's... Um, you know, in terms of eating disorders, a lot of people have heard of like orthorexia, which right. is, seems fairly similar to, um, some somewhat seems similar to anorexia nervosa, but it's not necessarily like the focus of the drive of, drive of uh, thinness. And then there's also like there's a muscle dysmorphia, which is actually falls within the category of body dysmorphic disorder, okay. and that is um, kind of, a, it's similar to like anorexia nervosa, but there's definitely some differences in what people are focusing on. Um, rather than focusing on low weight, people focus on like having a preoccupation with muscularity. So with muscle, I've, that's actually a new term for me, muscle dysmorphia. Is that the desire, is it always a desire to have more muscle, or is it more of a desire to be lean? It's a desire, yeah, so muscle dysmorphia is like a desire to, you know, be like lean and ripped and have huge muscles, but the key part of it that makes it a problem is this body image distortion that we also see in like in eating disorder, like anorexia nervosa. Okay. So, um... There's a there's this this aspect of it that people have this distortion in how in terms of how they look. Wow, that's very right. interesting. Megan, Meg, I have a quick question for you. Now, uh, I am an expert in eating disorders, but now my understanding is is orthorexia nervosa actually accepted now as an eating disorder? Because I believe for a while it was kind of just being debated and thrown around. 
Orthorexia is not an official diagnosis. And so um, there's actually been a lot of questions about, you know, this concept and this label has been thrown around a lot. Um, and it is not an official diagnosis, um, but there is um, within kind of the category of like unspecified feeding or eating disorder, there, um, is, there, is, there are people who tend to kind of fall within that um, kind of a framework that we describe as orthorexia. So essentially orthorexia, when people talk about it, it's a focus on, you know, uh, eating a particular way and having like eating very pure foods and essentially a lot of people who have what we would consider to be orthorexia, they tend to have a lot of the key features and the key thought process that a person with anorexia might have, but it's just directed rather than towards um, one's body and the body image distortion. It's more focusing on, um, the focus is more on the food and the type of food that they're eating and the purity of that food. Interesting. Because I would say that is that is probably more the what the average person I work with the, the things that I see is kind of a preoccupation. Well, I would say body dysmorphia and orthorexia are kind of what I see more of. In that, um, usually people have a very uh, kind of obsessive uh, view of their physique. Even if they can look they can look great, and they will sit there and, and talk badly about themselves, and then they uh, also have kind of this obsession with, you know, eating completely, you know, quote unquote, clean food in terms of, you know, non-GMO, non, or, or non-GMO organic, you know, no processing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's kind of what we see in the fitness community. Is that, is that similar to your experience, Sophie? Oh yeah, absolutely. But you know what? It's actually not only that, and I'm sure you have this too, Lane, but even with flexible dieting, and, and people know that, you know, no foods are off limits. They know that. But I think they still have this irrational fear of deviating from either um, being able to weigh and track macros down to the very gram. So they avoid social occasions, even if they are flexible dieting. So I think that um, yeah. a lot of times, I know Megan, you and I have emailed about this a few weeks ago, the irony of flexible dieting for some people, sometimes they are not actually very flexible when it comes to flexible dieting. <laughs> right? Yeah. Absolutely. And so essentially with eating disorders, what we see amongst all of the different disorders that I had mentioned is there's kind of a core theme to a lot of the eating disorders. And it's essentially this idea that you as a person, you kind of define yourself either through like your um, your the way that you're eating, the way that you're exercising, or the way that you bought your body looks, like how you define yourself as a person, those things tend to weigh a little bit too high on the scale of how you should define yourself as game. So there's an unfair, there's a there's this uh, balance that is uh, kind of skewed um, to one point where those things have become way too valuable for people. And in addition to it, that in addition to that self-esteem piece, um, there's also this tendency to um, have these rules and this, these rules and these obsessionalities and this lack of flexibility that I think is a really a key part of all of these kind of eating disorders and disordered eating that we see. Additionally, what we also notice is that this focus on eating, exercise, the way a person looks tends to um, tends to get in the way of how people live their lives and having a whole life where um, they're able to like work and hang out with friends and have a family so and, and hold a good job. You know, just all those different pieces uh, tend to become impaired by this, this disordered eating that people may have. That's very surprising. Um, well, well, it's really great information. It's also kind of sad to me that that there are people who are going through this right now. I mean, I speak from from coming from the background of having had anorexia and bulimia for a combined total of I think eight 
eight or ten years, so I completely understand everything that you're saying. Um, but it's really particularly interesting to me to read or to learn about flexible dieting and people still having eating disorders surrounding that. Is the is the inability to let go of the of the rules and the need to be so rigid and strict with everything that they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if I can if I can jump in, yeah. I, one of the hallmarks, as I understand it, uh, Dr. Megan, is that eating disorders, part of it is not even the food or the physique, it is the control aspect of things. Mm-hmm. That people want to be able to feel like they can control everything, and that's one thing they can control. And so if you take somebody with that kind of personality and, and you introduce them to, you know, if it's picture macros or flexible dieting, but they become, the, the control emphasis can shift to, you know, being perfect with their macros. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I tell people is part of flexible dieting, and obviously it changes when somebody's trying to get actively ready for stage, but one of the things about flexible dieting is actually being flexible and going out and not being able to track it down to the gram, but just right. being able to eyeball some things and say, hey, that's probably that, and not have that um, basically make you have the wheels fall off. Um, there's a paper by, and I want your comments on this, I read a paper by Westenhofer, this is years ago, where they noted kind of a disinhibition with people who were overly restrictive on dieting, in that people who were not restricted dieters, uh, when they were exposed to uh, a disinhibitor, like cookies or alcohol or whatever it is, they would eat less of that agent, whereas people who were restricted dieters, when they were exposed to the disinhibitor, they would actually eat much, much more of it. Um, I don't know if you've seen that paper, but I would like to hear your comments on, on, on that sort of thing, if that's something you've observed. Um, specifically with, like, the inhibition piece? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, what we definitely do observe is that there are kind of, when it comes to eating disorders, a couple different types. There are some people who are overly uh, restrictive completely, and um, then there are some people who are overly restrictive and they kind of swing back and forth between being too restrictive and under-restrictive. And um, sometimes, so you'll, you'll, and this group of people also tends to have, um, some personality traits where they may be a little bit more impulsive. Um, and so, yeah, you're, you're right. We do see this kind of clustering of certain behaviors that people may have. So some people may be extremely rigid when it comes to their eating, when it comes to their diet and, um, and exercise and have to um, have these preoccupations and these rules regarding it um, or things that they specifically have to do. But then, yeah, there's another group of people who will swing between being overly restrictive and then under-restrictive, and sometimes these people may get involved in drugs and alcohol and, and have some more of those uh, those tendencies to be involved in those behaviors as well. Did Very I interesting. Um, yes, 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 very much. Okay. Um, I think we're going to take a quick break, actually. We come back, I'd like to talk to Megan more about her actual research and the focus of what she's doing. Um, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be back on Physique Science Radio. Hey, guys. One of the things that's always on my mind is how can I give back to the industry that has done so much for me? That's why we formed the BioLane Foundation. The BioLane Foundation is a philanthropic initiative to raise money for grad school level research that is going to contribute to the fitness industry. It is 100% tax deductible and 100% of all your donations will be paid out to students. If you'd like to donate, you can go to BioLane.com, click on the About tab and click on BioLane Foundation and you can put your donation in through there. Or... If you're a student and you'd like to apply for a grant, please go to BioLane.com, click the About tab, click BioLane Foundation, and you can find the applications online there. Thank you guys so much, and I'm looking forward to all the great research that comes from these donations. Hey guys, you know me, and you know I love cooking up macro-friendly option meals. But sometimes when I'm always on the go... That's just not an option. So when I'm on the go or can't cook a meal, I love Quest Bars. You know I love protein and fiber, and these are packed 
with 20 grams of high quality protein and super high in fiber. And it's easy to stay on target when you've got Quest bars that you can bring with you anywhere. They're delicious compared to other bars that taste like bricks and leave you feeling gassy and bloated. So pick up a bar of Quest bars today at questnutrition.com, GNC, and Vitamin Shop. Also, follow them on Instagram at Quest Nutrition and youtube.com slash questnutrition for great recipe ideas to keep you on your goals but eating delicious. Hey guys, welcome back to Physique Science Podcast. Over the commercial break, we were just talking about uh, um, what specifically Megan was studying. And I know uh, Dr. Lane Norton had a question about that. Yeah, I was just wondering what she, what she talked about doing uh, imaging. I assume it's uh, magnetic resonance. So I was wondering what you're, what you're in the brain. I'm wondering what you're, what you're looking at, what you're seeing with people who having disorders. Is there a specific part of the brain that that typically affects, and, and what do you see? Sure, absolutely. So, yes, I am currently doing functional MRI and structural MRI research. And so my particular focus is on looking at body cue detection and how people detect different cues, internal cues in their body. So, like, that's related to hunger, satiety, pain, sensual touch. So that's kind of my, I, my main focus is focusing on um, the circuitry involved in those processes. And what we find is those processes are related to how a person detects their emotions. So um, in eating disorders, we have definitely found that um, there's, there's, this, this, there's this misconception that eating disorders are driven by people just wanting to be thin and that dieting causes eating disorders. But what we're actually finding is that there's a biological predisposition to people who end up developing eating disorders, particularly like anorexia and bulimia nervosa. And so um, in some of the research that I've been involved with, what we have found is that people who have eating disorders actually have uh, distorted ability to um, the stimuli, uh, like food stimuli, there's a change in how rewarding that stimuli is, and that affects certain parts of the brain. Um, one key part of the brain that I'm particularly interested in is um, the insula, the insula cortex of the brain, which is involved in um, hunger, satiety. It also has some relationship to um, reward as well. Um, so, yeah, we're seeing distorted reward pathways. We're seeing that people with eating disorders have some abnormality in terms of detecting different cues from their body. And, um, yeah, so there's a lot of different things going on biologically um, in people who not only develop an eating disorder, but we're also seeing that these differences in the brain remain after people have recovered fully from their eating disorder and don't have eating disorder symptoms anymore. That's very, That's very cool. interesting. So yeah. it's, it's kind of, I've always heard the comparison to an alcoholic and that you're never recovered, you're always recovering. Yeah, so actually that's a different mentality than um, kind of how a lot of people, a lot of scientists are viewing it now. So what we, what we see is that with eating disorders, there tends to be an onset during adolescence. There's something that happens during adolescent development that triggers something going on in the brain. And a person may then start engaging in dieting, which dieting doesn't cause eating disorders, but what it might do is reveal an eating disorder and reveal this underlying predisposition that a person may have. And so then, um, then in adolescence, you, you tend to see kind of the surge that tends to happen. But what we find is that a lot of people um, in their mid-20s, around the age of 25, a huge percentage of people with eating disorders, like around 50 to 70%, actually do fully recover. But then some people go on to having like 30% going to having lifetime chronic eating disorders, and then about 10% of people actually die from eating disorders. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
those are some scary numbers. And it actually, um, that was really interesting. You were saying about for, uh, for some people that they don't, the, the brain signals don't actually always rec fully recover even after they don't have the eating disorder anymore. And um, that's something that I've actually been wondering for a long time because, you know, having been a uh, former anorexic and bulimic, that's always been a lingering thought in the back of my mind wondering, you know, hunger signals, I wonder if they will ever, ever be normalized again because even for years after I stopped binging, they just, um, I could tell my hunger signals were completely off. So, would you say that for some people that you just they just never for the rest of their lives they just don't regain or normalize those hunger signals and other sig and other cues? We there's this is really new research that's currently happening right now, uh -huh. and so we're really trying to understand a little bit more about how people with eating disorders and how people recovered from eating disorders actually process these internal signals within the brain. So we need to do a lot more research to really kind of understand um, that recovery process. Um, we don't know whether current treatments right now actually can completely address some of what we are kind of seeing that's going on in the brain. Um, we're, we're hopeful that maybe down the road that that can change, but really um, there's no evidence currently that... Um, we, we don't know whether that can completely be restored in terms of hunger and satiety down the road. And in fact, there, um, we need to create new treatments and test these treatments to actually see if that's possible. You know, Megan, that actually reminds me of the next question that I wanted to ask you, and I think this is the perfect segue because, you know, speaking of hunger signals being off and everything, I know that intuitive eating nowadays is really popular and it's all the rage, and I think it's great for a lot of people, but I also, I've always had the suspicion that maybe intuitive eating is not best suited for, you know, there are some people for whom intuitive eating is actually contraindicated because as some of my uh, followers know, I back in this past spring, I was intuitive eating for about, I'd say seven months. And I found that during that time, my caloric intake was actually very, very low. I was eating anywhere between 900 to 1200 calories a day. And that was really alarming to me. And that's when I got back to tracking macros because I realized I, my hunger signals were just totally off, off whack. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, well, yeah, I think the concept of intuitive eating, I think it is, the idea is fantastic, and I would love for everybody to be able to listen to their body and understand when they're hungry, when they're full, being able to eat in that regard. However, we just don't really know completely with this, our scientific evidence whether that is possible for everybody. So there are some, a lot of different things that could possibly, um, even even when talking about, you know, with the neurobiology side of people who develop an eating disorder, there are a ton of things that could interfere with the person's ability to intuitively eat. Like, for example, you know, some people may be more sensitive to different cues in their environment. So like a person may be conditioned that whenever they sit down on their couch that they start feeling like they're hungry and there's kind of a pairing of stimuli and a conditioning that can play a role in how people choose. So yes, I think it would be fantastic if everybody intuitive However, I just don't really know. There isn't really evidence that that is completely possible for everybody. And in fact, some of the current research um, on eating disorders may suggest that there is a biological and genetic predisposition to having some people have more difficulties with detecting and responding to cues in the body. And we need to do a lot more research to really understand what that's about, and then to figure out what to actually do about it. Um, if people can intuitively eat, what are other alternatives for those people in terms of how they can then make sure that they're eating in a way that's adaptive and that's right for their body? Right. Megan, that's really interesting. Um, one of the, I, I took a two-semester course in graduate school on hunger and appetite, uh -huh. and 
I came I came out of that much more confused than I did when I went in. <laughs> and uh, one of the things you learn is that appetite and hunger have not only physiological inputs but psychological and sociological inputs. And furthermore, uh, the signals are extremely complex. Um, for example, it actually shown uh, after restrictive diet or longer diet periods of dieting that your gut may still send hunger signals, or I'm sorry, uh, fullness signals like CCK or um, GLP to the brain, and the brain uh, in some way actively blocks those signals. So there's, there's this complex network of the, there's certain signals that are important, but only when other signals are present. And that's why I tell people that, you know, I think intuitive eating is a good idea and kind of concept but I also think it's very difficult to implement effectively. I can tell you that when I was growing up, uh, and I've never considered myself somebody who has body dysmorphia, uh, I did have an I say, awkward relationship with food for a while. And when I did finish my first show, before, before I did my first show, um, I was always having to like force myself to eat food. I always had to force myself to eat. And after that show, I can tell you, decisively, I have not been full since then. Uh, even when I feel physically, even when I feel physically full, I still in the back of my brain, could I still can say to myself, yeah, you know, I can eat again, you know. So, I, I, I that's always been my skepticism with intuitive eating and why I think it's important for people to be kind of realistic with themselves, like so he was when, when they say, you know, am I? Is it real, right. is it a good idea for me to eat intuitive? Absolutely. And I, Lane, I totally agree with you about, isn't it funny how sometimes you take certain classes and you just come out with knowing all this new information and just makes things more confusing? The more, uh, like you know, the more confusing it can be sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with you. I, I think that, um, Yes, I, I, I think it would be fantastic for people to be able to intuitively eat, but there's no shame in people needing to have some physical guidelines in order to eat if that's what keeps them eating in the way that they need to adequately feed their body. So people need to do what works for them and to trust themselves like Sohi did. So, so, Sohi, you tried intuitive eating and it yeah. sounds like it didn't work for you. Oh, yeah. And so you found something that worked for you and has been, you've been able to do it and follow, you know, this, these, these guidelines that you have in a way that you're not engaging in, you know, these preoccupations or rituals about eating and you're able to adequately feed your body for the amount of like work and exercise that you're, you're doing and that's fantastic. So I think for everybody it might be a little bit different and we're trying to understand the body more and that's why this research is super important. But I think that we all need to just kind of take a step back and rather than force forcing everybody to follow like doing the same exact thing is to realize that we may be wired in different ways mm -hmm. and it's okay to have different techniques in terms of eating or fitness uh, as long as you're able to do what's best for your body and able to feed it in the, the right way and do that in a way where you aren't engaging in um, these eating disorder thoughts or engaging in inflexibility or any of those other things that are in line with eating disorders. I love that you said that, Megan, because um, I think when, when uh, for our young students out there listening, uh, one of the hallmarks of really good scientists is they very rarely speak in absolute. Um, they understand that everything is gray area. And like Megan just said, um, like, I've always approached things is that everything is tools in a tool belt, and it just depends on what kind of job you need to do, depends on what kind of tool you'll be using. And, you know, some tools you may use a lot more than others, but it still doesn't mean that, you know, each individual one, that one you don't use that often is useless. So I think that's really good that you brought that point up. Well, my, my question that I would be interested to hear your opinion on is, for people who struggle with eating disorders, what... Well, I don't want to say what treatments, but what have you seen uh, be kind of most effective, I would say, on the, your average take of 
you know, for example, our audience, somebody in the fitness industry who may struggle with orthorexia and uh, maybe binging or those sorts of things, do you see kind of one technique that comes out maybe being a little bit more commonly effective than others, or is it just very, very much case by case? Well, I think it really depends on it depends on the disorder and the It's really important, I think, for people to understand how dangerous they are and um, how they really can lead to causing serious problems in a person's life, whether it comes from binge eating or orthorexia or whatever, I really think that if somebody is struggling with their eating, that it's really important to have an evaluation from like a psychologist, somebody who is, um, somebody who is an expert in treating eating disorders. Um, but also some of these experts in treating the eating disorders and, and like athletes too, so that they can understand uh, that component of it as well. So I think I think um, for for people who are struggling, they really need to be honest with themselves and understand that um, their mindset may need to be changed in terms of. They might need to work with a therapist on determining um, other ways to help with their self-esteem rather than just focusing on food, exercise, their physique, and kind of enhancing those other parts of their lives so that um, their eating and exercise or whatever doesn't get in the way of those other parts of their lives. But also, too, eating disorders can be very, very dangerous. Um, and it can cause people to go into cardiac arrest if people are malnourished. There are all of these different implications. So I think it's important that people get an evaluation to make sure that they're medically okay to be, um, that they're, they're doing okay medically and that they don't need to have um, uh, medical stabilization at all. So in terms of like eating disorder treatment, um, a lot of a lot of therapists will work with um, people on normalizing their eating, trying to see people with becoming more using some of the rituals that they have, getting people comfortable with um, be comfortable with like not having their rules and getting rid of those rules and, and eating in a normal way where that's appropriate for their body. So those are a very specific treatments. I think the tricky part with eating disorders is the fact that often people, they may be distressed by certain behaviors, but a lot of people may not see that they have a problem. And so that's very the true. scary part that I think people need to be aware of is that they may be Thicker than um, they might necessarily think that they are. Right. Yeah, very true. Very true. It's like the um, I don't want to make a back comparison, but uh, you know they say like the, the first step to recovery for alcoholism, gambling addiction, that sort of thing is admitting you have a problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's a very good point. That if you if you if somebody does have a problem. The most important thing is not to go hire a coach, not to go on, you know, interstitial macros or flexible dieting or into a meeting. It's to go see a professional and have right. a professional figure out what the best course of action is. I completely 100% agree, yes. And it might be tempting to want to, like, oh, I can focus on this and change it on my own and go see a coach. Um, but that's really, I mean, that's, that's tricky, and I think it's really important that you go get professional help. And I think it's really important for coaches, too, to be aware of these different signs of eating disorders and for coaches to have people that they feel like you can refer clients to in order to reach out to a professional um, in order to make sure that their client's going to be doing okay. I agree. Unfortunately, I've seen some coaches who basically actively encourage eating disorders, but I, I also yeah. see that changing as more awareness is being brought to this issue. So I think we're going to take a break real quick, and when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll have some more information with Dr. Megan. We'll join you guys again shortly. This is Steve Science here.
Hey guys, Lane here. Well, you all know how much I love variety in my diet. I can't stand eating the same bland food every single day. That's why I love www.myoatmeal.com. It's an amazing website where you can go and customize oatmeal. I know, I know, I know. Why would I want to go customize oatmeal? I can eat it right out of the bag. Well, let me tell you why. MyOatmeal.com has 22 billion combinations of flavors and ingredients. You heard me right. 22 billion combinations. Whether you're picking out a pre-made blend or making your own customized blend, they have all kinds of flavors. Want red velvet cake? No problem. Snickerdoodle? You can make it happen. Butter rum? Oh yeah. Cheesecake? You can get it done. And you have all kinds of additives you can add. Apples, raisins, pears, nuts, all kinds of seeds. And you can sweeten it any way you want. Need to eat gluten-free? No problem. They've got it. The best part of it all? The macros are listed as you're customizing your blend. And they change depending on which ingredients you add. Eating a little bit lower carb? No problem. Choose ingredients that make your carb count lower. Need more protein? Add higher protein ingredients. You can customize your blend to make it almost any breakdown that you want. And the prices and macros change as you change your blend. So go on over to www.myoatmeal.com and check out some of the blends that have already been made. Or be adventurous and make your own. That's myoatmeal.com. Check it out, guys. You're listening to Physique Science Radio with Lane Norton and Sohee Lee. If you like what you hear and you'd like to learn more about us and read some of our articles, please visit my website at www.biolane.com and Sohee's website at soheefit.com. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you listening and hope to hear more from you in the future. Hey, guys. Many of you out there know I spend a lot of time bagging on bad coaches. And certainly, there's more than enough of those to go around. But a lot of times people ask me who I do recommend. Well, one person we can recommend wholeheartedly is Paul Ravella of Pro Physique. Paul has received more referrals from me over the last two years than any other coach, and with good reason. Paul is competent, professional, caring, and carries himself with a lot of integrity. If you hire Paul, you're going to be getting the very best at a great value. Paul is also one of my closest personal friends, and I can say with absolute certainty, I feel 100% comfortable with referring my closest friends and family to him, because I've done that. Paul Ravella of ProPhysique.com. Check him out, guys. Welcome back to Physique Science Podcast. This is uh, Lay Norton and Sohi. We were just having a really great conversation with Dr. Megan about coaching, actually, because, um, and I'm particularly interested because I'm a coach and Dr. Lane is a coach, online coach, actually, more specifically. And we were talking about, uh, you know, how to, how do you deal with clients online and provide them with the service that they need and help get them to their goals while also making sure that they're not, you know, wandering into eating disorder territory or if they are, how to best help them. So I'm sure this happens a lot, Megan. What are what are your best recommendations? Well, I definitely recommend that coaches acknowledge their limits as coaches. I think that that's the number one thing. Um, recognizing that when you might need to reach out and refer somebody to a professional, or even consult with a professional and talk to the professional about how you can deal with clients. That's great. You know, I think that that does not happen. I think Lane will agree with me that that just does not happen nearly enough with with coaches in the industry because, you know, it's it's too easy to play to to play people's insecurities and and tell them that, you know, they're not going to be happy until they reach a certain weight or a certain look. And I think for me, it's particularly alarming to when when clients come to me or people come to me and they say, you know, I just, I hate my body and I'm not going to be happy until I look a certain way. And for me, I don't know, 
maybe you have a different recommendation for me, but I always say, try to say something along the lines of, you know, that's not always, um, that's not really, you know, you don't have to be thinking like that. And if it's really serious or if they're having suicidal tendencies, then I'll definitely say, you know, maybe the help that you're looking for is not the help that I can provide for you. Or, or um, maybe, I, you know, trying to, trying to communicate that, that, as Lane alluded to earlier, that following macros and following flexible dieting and following a fitness program is not going to help with that because that's not really, this is not the solution. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think it's really, yeah, exactly. I think it's super important that that coaches understand that. And I think it's really important that coaches understand the magnitude of the severity when somebody does have an eating disorder and recognizing that, I mean, you don't want to have something bad happen to the clients that are working with you. I think people really need to acknowledge that eating disorders, they're not a product of culture. They're not a product of vanity. They're a disease, and I want coaches to think about if you're coaching anybody who has a particular disease, let's say like you know somebody has cancer, you would approach how you are working with that client in a different way than, you know, a client who's in perfect health. Eating disorders aren't an exception. So I think it's really important for coaches to, um, yeah, rather than, okay, forcing somebody, I think it's important for coaches to encourage to their clients that just kind of changing up and doing like, uh, if you set your macros or doing a different, a workout plan might not might not change it for their client, and they, they actually do have to reach out for professional help. And I think it's super important that coaches um, don't ignore eating disorders, mm-hmm. and they don't try to sweep it underneath the rug. And this is one of the reasons why I was so excited about talking with you, Sohi and Lane, is mm-hmm. is uh, having this conversation. I think that you know as as scientists, it's super important that we communicate with other scientists outside of even our direct field, especially when they're interrelated. And I think, you know, uh, Lane, your field, my field, I think they're, they're very closely related. It's so important to have these conversations about science so that we can really disseminate um, the correct information to people out there so that they're not necessarily relying upon, you know, cultural messages. So I think it's important for coaches to really try to understand the literature behind eating disorders Mm -hmm. rather than following this kind of um, pseudo kind of understanding of eating disorders to really try to learn that they're diseases, they're dangerous diseases, and you don't want to, it's really important to refer people to professionals. And it's super important, too, to just kind of when you're working with clients and taking on clients, to watch out for rigidity, obsessions, compulsions, and also really listen to the emotional factors that may be driving a person's exercise and dieting. So if you have a client that comes in saying, hey, I want to look a certain way, you, you want to kind of try to understand why they want to look that certain way. Is there, are they just trying to, um, to get into shape because they want to improve their health? Are they getting it? Or are they trying to, like, change their physique because they may have um, some emotional insecurities that they're trying to that they might be trying to cover up by focusing on their eating and their and and uh, their their training. Right, and, that's a really good point, yeah. Megan. And oh, I'm sorry. So, do you want to go or should I jump in? Oh, I was just going to make a really a remark that um, you reminded me of, Megan. I remember just that reminded me of when you said a little bit ago. You know, just because you diet does not mean that you have an eating disorder. And I think that's a huge misconception out there, how, you know, when you post people, clients, you know, before and after or transformation photos, people just swarm to attack you. They say, oh, you, there's nothing wrong with you before. And they, they're always on the, the assumption that you made the, you decided to lose fat because you thought there was something wrong with you to begin with. And I think that is grossly misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and, and so, maybe if you don't mind, I'm going to jump in because my point was actually very similar to Sohi's. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, you know, pe- 
people listening to this may get the wrong impression and say that, well, anybody who diets has means so anybody wants to look better. And that's not what we're saying. Um, it's okay to want to look better as long as that is a cognitive decision right. where it's not an obsession and it doesn't, in, it doesn't negatively impact your quality of life. I look at it, and this is, this is again, not an eating disorder specialist, but from what I understand, it's okay to want to look better. It's okay to want to get more muscle, be leaner. Even restricting calories is fine. But when it pushes you to the point where that negatively impacts your quality of life, that is when you kind of keep it on the edge of a disorder, and that is where it becomes a real problem. Am I, am I correct in that, in kind of that view of things? I definitely agree. I absolutely agree with both of what you, Lane, and what you, Sophie, are saying. Uh -huh. So essentially, in the history of eating disorders, eating disorders have been seen as a cultural issue. People develop eating disorders because of, like, vanity and because they want to look a certain way. But what we're finding is that's not the case is dieting doesn't cause eating disorders. Dieting, however, in people who are predisposed to them may reveal an eating disorder. And that's a very important distinction to make. However, with that premise, some people may be able to diet and do it in a safe way. Mm -hmm. Some people may be able to want to improve their physique, may want to diet down, may want to increase their muscle mass, and that's totally fine as long as it's not causing impairments in their life, as long as it's not causing um, a person to develop these preoccupations, these rituals, as long as not, they're not spending hours and hours and hours obsessing over prep and having it cause issues in their relationships. So I think, though, for people who are currently wanting to improve their physique, it's important for people to be honest with themselves. Why are you trying to improve your physique? Is it because you have a um, – is it because you – just, you know, want to look a little bit better and you already have a full life. Um, you have great relationships and it's just something you want to become more healthy. Awesome. And you want to enrich your life in that way, then great. Or are you coming from the point where you feel like, I'm not good enough, but if I lose, you know, so much weight, so much body fat, if I gain this much muscle, muscle, this much muscle, then I'm going to be a good person. That's a whole different mentality. So yes, I think it's totally okay for people to want to be in, in shape and to want to work on their physique, but they need to come from it from a place of self-love. You want to do it to enhance your life. And also, I think it's super important to surround yourself with people who can hold you accountable and who can, you know, if you're focusing on trying to improve your physique, you know, talk to your friends. And if they feel like you are focusing too much on it and it's impairing your relationships or if it starts to impair your function at work, yeah, then that might be a problem. Absolutely, and that's, Megan, that is great. I love that because I, I've always said, you know, I, I've said there are certain people who shouldn't bodybuild or who shouldn't do physique oh, competition. Yeah. It's not good for them. Um, yeah. I, I, I've always said, you know, I felt like bodybuilding enhanced my life. You know, yeah. made my life better. Um, and there, but there are so many people I see. I, I've had clients who send me updates, and I literally want to scream because <laughs> their entire update is negative, and I right. sit there and, and think about, you know, you hate this. You hate the actual process of what you're doing, but the only reason you're doing it is because you feel like you'll be happy if you've got a certain physique. And I can tell you from working with people who have fantastic physique that most people would, would, would die for, and some people would literally would die for, um, that they're no happier, that their physique has no bearing on their happiness. I, the people who have great physiques, I've seen them be no happier or unhappier than every other person I've ever met. And so I always tell people, if you're, if you're wasting a lot of physique to make you happy or you believe or if you tie all your self-worth to what you see in the mirror, you're, you're not going to be a happy person. I can promise you that. But, Lane, I absolutely love that message that you're sending. I think it's super, super important. I couldn't agree with you anymore. Fitness should enhance your life. Um, it should yes. make you feel healthy. Thank you. And yes. <laughs> 
It should. And lifting weights and like becoming stronger should empower you and should make you feel awesome. And if you're finding that that's not the case, then you really kind of need to rethink what you're doing. You want to be able to engage in a lifestyle that's sustainable, something that enhances your life, something that enhances your relationships your ability to do your job at work rather than take away from it. So, yes, the moment that you feel that's, like that's not happening, you need to reevaluate and reconsider why you're doing what you're doing. That's awesome, Megan. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, I, I've actually had people tell me because they put on 15, 20 pounds after a show and they have more body fat and they'll tell me, well, I just want to be healthy again. I just want to be healthy. And I'll t I have to give them a reality check and I'll say, well, what makes you think they're not healthy? Is your heart rate normal? Is your blood pressure normal? Are your blood levels normal? Are you performing well in the gym? Do you have good energy? Is your endocrine system functioning well? Because I've had people, I'm like, because remember, you know, when you were lean, you were very restricting yourself. You were tired. You were sluggish. Uh, you were, you know, having thoughts of, of binging. You, you know, you had bad relationships. This isn't everybody. But, you know, some people, they, they put on a little body fat and they think that's unhealthy. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, there are many people who have physiques that look fantastic that have endocrine problems and they have, you know, eating disorders and they, they have bad relationships with their family. I mean, and they're very sluggish, tired. So what makes, uh, I tell them, what makes you think that that's healthy? And they, they usually don't have much of an answer to that sort of thing. So I think that's a, I think you make a really important distinction there. I think a lot of people miss that. Absolutely. And if you... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Megan, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, um, we're, we're running a little short of time, so I do want to wrap it up. But I, I have one, I guess I have a few points I'd like you to make. Um, if, if, if for our listeners out there who, who think, you know, this, there are probably a certain percentage of our listeners who listen to this and go, yeah, it's definitely not me. But there's probably some also saying, you know what, that, that could be me. How, how can people kind of better get an idea that maybe they are having disordered eating and, you know, what kind of rituals should they look for to kind of decide if they should go see a professional or not? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question, Lane, and I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, I, in, terms of, in terms of things that you need to watch out for for yourself is, well, I mean, definitely you want to watch out for, let's say, um, when it comes to, well, number one thing I think is rigidity. And um, if you're finding that you're trying to take a perfectionistic attitude towards your eating and your fitness and everything has to be exact, you have rules about like your eating. And so let's say, for example, you have certain foods that you are okay to eat and certain foods that are bad and if you break those rules and eat those bad foods, if you start feeling guilty, if you start feeling shameful, those are thoughts that I think are very um, associated with disordered eating and you should probably talk to a professional about those thoughts. Additionally, binging is something to really watch out for. So watching between, watch out between these swings between under restriction and being overly restricted and losing that ability to be restricted and to kind of throw all of the rules out the window. So engaging in binge eating and if you feel like you start, when you start to eat, you feel like you lose control and you feel like you can't stop eating, that's another sign that something's wrong. If you are completely kind of, you feel like you either have this black and white, you're either overly restricted or you completely lose control, that's a sign that there's something wrong and you should talk to a professional. Another sign that something wrong should be watching out for physiological issues too. So, um, you know, having issues with your heart rate, having um, feeling sluggish, um, like for women, you know, it's uh, you know, menstrual issues, losing your period, kind of looking out for all of those different physical signs is important too. And also watching your inner, your relationships with other people. Are you unhappy and focusing and thinking about food all the time? When you think about your thoughts, 
What percentage of your thoughts are purely focused on food and exercise? If it's a super high percentage, that's a sign that there's something that's not quite right. Um, if it's in an obsessional kind of thinking, then that's not really good. Also, you want to, you know, try to make sure that you're not excluding people out of your life. You're not um, focusing too much on food and exercise to the point where you're ruining relationships with family members and friends. Those are all signs that you might have a pathological uh, approach to your eating currently. So I, I take it that you would say, and I'm, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but you probably aren't a big fan of, you know, kind of plans that tell you you can only eat these foods and never eat these foods, that, that sort of kind of exclusive dieting. Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, these rules about what you should and should not eat, I think that that's a problem. Um, absolutely. I think, you know, food is... You know, food is food. Food's good for your body and food tastes good too. And you want to be able to enjoy food and enjoy how it makes your body feel, enjoy having that fuel in your body, and enjoy how it tastes too. But in, you want to approach it in a way that's moderate and a way that you're using guidelines rather than specifically having rules. Well, Megan, uh, I, I think I can speak for Sophie and myself when I say you've been a fantastic guest and it's it's nice. I've learned a lot of stuff. It's also nice to know that some of what I've been advising just kind of based off what I've observed over the years has been, sounds like it's in line with what uh, what you would recommend. That's, that's uh, very heartening for me to hear. But um, I, wish we could, I wish we could talk to you more. Um, but before we go, is there any in, anything you'd like to say, anything you'd like to plug, any thank yous, and any, um, any also any like free online um, uh kind of support that may be available to people with eating disorders where they can go on and learn more. Yes, definitely. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking this time to talk with me about this important issue. Yet again, I brought it up earlier. I think it's super, super, I love what you're doing. And I love that you have this podcast where you're bringing on different scientists talking about, um, you know, the evidence and the scientific basis of moving forward and exercise, fitness, nutrition. I think it's super important for my people within my field, too, to understand um, what you're talking about, too, Lane and Sohi, and to understand um, kind of uh, a scientific approach to exercise and eating. And that's why I think it's super important that we have these conversations, talk about disordered eating, but also just talk about you know, um, the science behind um, how to approach a healthy um, fitness, nutrition, the whole, the whole package. Right. So I just am, you know, I'm, I'm a big supporter in terms of the message that you're sending to the people. And so I think that that, you know, the message you're sending is great. Um, and I also think, you know, uh, people too, if there's anybody out there who is really currently, that strikes a chord with them, if you're thinking, oh, wow, you know, I kind of struggle with those sorts of things, um, definitely um, try to reach out to people who are experts in eating disorders and um, are providing that treatment. If you live in an area where there's a university that's close to you, um, I would contact like a university, see if there's a medical center, see if there's people in like a psychiatry department who can refer you to um, talking with somebody um, who is an expert in eating disorders. I think it's super important to try to reach out to um, people who are uh, have the background in eating disorders. And there's a huge movement in the eating disorders field too, where we're kind of moving on, moving into understanding the neurobiology underlying eating disorders. And so. Um, trying to reach out and receive treatment from people who um, are up to date and are currently doing that research and um, providing treatments that are evidence-based treatments, that's extremely important. So I know that there are some fantastic programs here in California, like at uh, Stanford University, um, University of California, San Francisco, University of California, San Diego, um, and 
the UC system down. There's a lot of really great university-based programs, and that's, I think, maybe a really awesome place to start. I'm not as familiar with all of the different programs in all of the different states, but that might be a really great way for people who are struggling to just kind of reach out um, in order to try to get some help. Well, that's great, Megan, and thank you so much. We really appreciate that. This is a discussion that needs to be had. It's one of those things a lot of people kind of cringe at, but the reality is that there's a, a large contingent of people in the fitness industry that have eating disorders or deal with these sorts of things. So it's a conversation that needs to be had, and we truly appreciate you coming on our show, and uh, we'll look forward to possibly seeing you again in the future. So All right, Tom. Lee, Thank you, Megan. So for Sonny Lee and Dr. Megan, I'm Lane Morton saying see you next time on Physique Science Radio. Later. Thanks, guys. Bye.